and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man who, when he can't cope with emotional intimacy, just gets his big sword out. Duncan Nickel. Oh, God. Wow, we're getting bold now, Duncan. Are I know. we getting bold? I'm, I'm actually cringing over my own line there. But I was like, <laughs> I come up with two for Berserk. Um, because for those that's that true, that's true. Haven't don't know. Very unfair of us to ambush you like that. I was all in favor of us recording our first four-hour episode, but Duncan said that was unreasonable. It was indeed. So we decided to split Berserk up into a part one and part two. So if you're listening to this and haven't listened to part one, please go and listen to part one. It will not make a single bit of sense. Um, it's been. Enough time that it's no longer Spooky Month, Duncan. It's no longer a book club. It's just a book club. And in this book club, we are revisiting and concluding our analysis of the Golden Age in Berserk. We are indeed. And it's been a while. I'm not going to lie. Now, as time's gone on, it's been longer since I finished reading Berserk, uh, which I did for the first Mm -hmm. time over this year. Um, I found some books in between, if you want to hear about them. Do we want to hear about them? What do you think? What do you want to hear about them? Uh, I read Isaac Asimov's uh, Bicentennial Man uh, between our our last meeting and this one. And it was a good book. Uh, if anyone's interested, Isaac Asimov uh, wrote the Foundation series. And a lot of the best sci-fi mm. out there, like iRobot. And it, sure, every, iRobot's a good book. Honestly, every time I touch on him, it's sort of like... I see where a lot of the critiques come from when it comes to Isaac Asimov. Uh, he's writing. Yeah, some yeah. people describe some, describe it as uh, dry. Uh, I personally feel it's quite clean. Uh, I don't feel like he often goes too much than he needs to, but um, he it's amazing how he simultaneously balances some of the most like forward thinking uh, science fiction concepts yeah. and uh, now what I would consider outdated uh, outright sexist opinions. And it's mm, impressive yeah, skills I mean, I remember. I remember when I was reading The Foundation and I was talking to you about it and I said at some point, Duncan, um, I'm halfway through this book and no women have spoken. Zero. They haven't even said like something misogynistic or dated. They literally have not spoken. Yes. Do you know what? There's also a scene where someone pays for something with coins in the year like 30,000. There is indeed that. I think for me, the biggest one that always stuck out, though, was actually the smoking habits. Everyone's always getting yeah. cigars. And I'm just like, I don't know. But for me, I just felt, I always felt like smoking would eventually become like quite a dated thing. Yeah, man. Where's their vape pens? Um, but then simultaneously, oh, no, actually, no. Sorry. This is my favorite bit about reading it, which really took me by. And it kind of links into Berserk, I guess, in that sort of apocalyptic sense. Uh, Asimov's oh. numbers for like unsustainable populations and like food crises. He's like, the Earth's population had peaked at six billion. It would be seven billion, but not for the famine. And you're like, oh, we're like like eight billion. <laughs> like your apocalypse, your like dystopia is better than our reality, mate. I know that's so crazy, mind you. Um, in like in the expanse, I think the population of Earth is like two hundred billion. Which is a stupidly big number, man. Cut it back a little bit. Maybe it's 200 billion. Maybe I'm wrong. 200 billion. 20 billion? 30 billion. My bad. I don't know how land... I don't know how Earth population, how you work. To be honest, I think that could be achievable 
if all food was off planet and we basically lived in uh, super cities like they have in Caves of Steel, also by Isaac Asimov. The one thing I, I really like by Isaac Asimov is a short story he wrote called The Final Question, which is very good. And I would recommend if anyone's interested in Asimov, I've said literally everything I want to say about him. iRobot's good. The Final Question's very good. And I don't really <laughs> I have no strong opinions. Read fucking Ray Bradbury. He's just better. Okay. Um, I would say he, he is good. You can get past some of his more uh, datus attitudes. I think he has a good control on his sci-fi concepts. And I think, like I said, you could describe his work as quite dry. He does kind of focus down a lot on the concepts he's exploring. I would say it's it's not so much dry as it is uh, literally too boring to possibly survive. I could not finish Foundation for the life of me. I strongly disagree. Speaking of boring, <laughs> um, the book I've been reading in the meantime is The Two Towers. I've been rereading that. Um, I finished with Silmarillion, realized I never really finished my read-through of The Two Towers. Started from the beginning again, uh, enjoyed the first half immensely, and then got to the Frodo bits and went, oh boy, it's it's real slow. Like, uh, that one that, that one I'm struggling with. It's so, it breezes by when you're hanging out with Aragorn and Merry and Pippin, but Sam and Frodo literally just have a long way to walk. I've got to Faramir, and I'm like, I need to take a break. I know you're a cool guy, Faramir, but I've got to come back to you. See, I, I do have that with Lord of the Rings, but it's not then. It, I have it in the first half of... Not in the first half. The Aragorn, like, Legacy and Gimli sections in Return of the King, mm. I find always drag for me. That's my kind of... That's yeah, man. Point. It's literally, like, they have... It's so inconsequential. It also feels really inconsequential. Like, this is Aragorn's big dramatic return to Gondor. It's the return of the king. And it's about them going on a side quest to get some boats to make sure that Mordor doesn't have backup. Um, yeah, but they don't do have to get the army of the ghosts. But that's my very point, though. Even though, but the, going... the army of the ghosts aren't that exciting. No, like when I read that book, I because uh, I saw the films first, just for the nature they come obviously. out by that time. I was reading the section. Yeah. Like, Is this meant to be the army of ghosts? Like, I swear they're literally just walking up a path. And sort of just seeing spirits. Mm. There's no action to it. There's no thrilling element. They kind of just yeah. saunter up and, and go, the, the, come with me. And the ghost showing up at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields is, I think, a bad adaptation. A really bad adaptation that undermines the entirety of the battle itself. But um, it's not very exciting in a book at all. The ghosts show up. He summons the ghosts. And the ghosts come with him and scare a bunch of pirates, these corsairs. And because the, they scare the pirates, they then let the ghosts leave. And then Aragorn just takes the boats and sails down with a bunch of, like, northern rangers. And that's his big dramatic uh, show up at the end. He brings, like, 200 guys with him. I still maybe expect to refer that, though, to how the ghosts were... We're getting too much into all the rings. I have some issues. We sure are. That's <laughs> for a long time in the future, I think. What we are talking about um, also involves armies of well not ghosts something much worse yes they are much much worse because we're getting into the final yeah. part of the golden age arc in berserk where all the dark fantasy elements really start to come out of the woodwork so Dordy, where did we leave off duncan i believe we left off last time with guts leaving the band of a hawk it's a very pivotal moment not only in guts's journey of him trying to become a more independent man, to find a dream of his own. 
it's also a big deal because it caused Griffith to make a really huge mistake. To act out of his desperation and need to be loved, to sleep the Princess Charlotte, whereupon he got caught, whereupon he got put in prison, whereupon he got tortured for two years straight, and and the band of a hawk became persona non grata, hunted almost to oblivion. And that is when we when Guts, two years later, rejoins the band of a hawk after finding out after so long that they've been in trouble. And I think it's quite a nicely done time skip. I think it the pang of what the band of the hawk has lost, particularly the other members, really does come into focus. Mm. Um, because you just when Guts leaves, it's all like they're about to join the upper echelons of society, you know. And these are people who have just they've worked. That's hard. right. They're going to be a part of the official. Exactly. Army. They're going to be recognised for their achievements and to have that all stolen away. And I really kind of empathised reading this with the members and why some of them have these really mixed feelings towards Guts. Like the fact that some of them are like blaming mm. him for spurring on Griffith's actions. I'm like, mm-hmm. obviously, I don't agree with it and i think it is clearly the wrong opinion to hold but i really like no i get you mm-hmm. i get you why it's a very human reaction you're having this reaction and because griffith isn't here you he's the guy now who you can take out on when he finally comes back and that's exactly what casca does because casca is the number one person to be like she's had the entire weight of leading the band of a hawk in their worst years on her shoulders griffith literally never had it this bad that's right, and I think it's really important to kind of then recognise the strength of the other characters. Like, Casca, in many respects, mm. is just as good a leader at leading the band as sort of Griffith was. At least that's my reading. That's really what oh, I yeah. really take away from these moments. They all idolise what Griffith does. I don't think anyone really realises mm-hmm. that Griffith was only got to where he was through basically delegating to some of the best people about. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that Casca holds it together like when they're being hunted on the edge and like Keith Sinclair also as a family I love this moment how you really get how everyone's like looking up to her in that kind of supportive mm-hmm. way it's true it's, 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 it really goes to show at a really pivotal moment in the manga that the band of a hawk is its own community that these are people some of them literally left the band of a hawk I think who is it like one of the members left the band like around the same time Guts did and came back when he found out they were in trouble Like, he didn't have to be there. He could have gone on with his own life. He could have pretended he was never a hawk, but he can't do that. That's the only bit that kind of gets at me, though, because I'm like, if your job was to keep the band going, why not just pick a direction and just break over the border and just fuck off into another nation? That's what they're trying to do, I think. That's their plan is, like, if we could just, like, move without being detected, we could get across the border and get away. Then again, they certainly can't go to Tudor. They would not be very popular there. That's true. I still, it's just at the back of my head because I am a little bit like when I, also when I first read this through, excellent, fine, perfect, really emotionally there. I have had a bit of this reflection though. There's sort of like water cooler moments later on. I'm like, wait, why is that like the army of Midland? I'm like, wasn't this literally driven to like annihilation in the war? How many like loyal full-time soldiers are left in this kingdom to hunt this mercenary band and also like griffith i know like why the king hates him obviously but like he had some good pr leading up to this event was every single person just like ah but not in the army 
like, like they can, and, and actually, no, that's what you point out. They do get shelter from, like, a family of true believers. They're like, wow, I can't believe we get to help the heroes of Midland. We're so excited to help you, Griffith. Have a flower. Nothing bad happens to us. Nothing. Point well made. So let's get back into the yeah. emotional plots and of Guts and Cusker. Because I actually think the next little bit, uh, their sort of reunion, the way they sort of work through their emotions together, and the climax of that uh, yeah. little that story beat, shows where Berserk really excels over other kind of comics of his age. And that is the time. And when I say yeah. time... I mean, literal, like, page space. Like, the number mm-hmm. of panels dedicated to letting the characters move from one emotion to another and displaying that just through their facial expressions mm-hmm. and dialogue, but through their facial expressions and their body language, panel to panel. I think it's like a whole chapter uh-huh. just to carrying out these emotional beats. I'm like, this is where you stepped exactly. up. Exactly. Like, more than dealing with the action or the beautiful gore, um, or in the mm-hmm. political intrigue, I think it's the dedication and the, I think almost the bravery of the author to dedicate that much time in what was, in the climate that this was first coming out. I don't know of any other examples mm-hmm. where the same dedication was given to that. I, there might be. I just don't know of them. I can't speak historically, but but essentially what you're talking about, Duncan, is... You know, this is a seinen manga. This is an action horror manga written for young adult men. But the attention being given to glistening eyes and and facial expressions and body language and people holding each other is the sort of stuff you'd expect to see in a shoujo, in a romantic manga for girls, you know? that About the way someone looks at someone else, the way they move in before a big kiss. That's not something you expect to see in a manga like this. And in our previous episode, I complimented the action art of someone like Horikoshi, the creator of My Hero Academia. But when I read My Hero Academia, I don't see stuff like this. I don't see these really subtle gestures towards a big emotional moment. Would you say then that this... Let's see this really hard, because I'm trying to ask of you, Jordi, it's trying to get that kind of tear sense. Because mm-hmm. when I look back on Berserk, it's actually these moments that make me go, oh, that was when I met. It was almost a, mm-hmm. it was almost like an intimate moment for like a reader. Like, oh, I've been brought in. I'm in this secret world now. Like when you're out on the internet, it's always mm-hmm. like guts, mm-hmm. the great swordman, death battle, who would win? And then you, you get to actually read it. And it's when you oh, yeah. experience this moment, oh, yeah. you're like, oh, I'm in the in crowd now. I'm part of the group that actually read the manga. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something to that. And I think what you're getting at, Duncan, is something that I really want to hammer home in this in this episode, which is that we've talked about how the, in the last episode we hammered out how good the action is, how amazing uh, Miura was as an artist and depicting motion. But he was also amazing at emotion, you know? The way in which you could lay out a panel to communicate feeling and lay out a story to communicate themes, that's what makes this really great. That's what makes this literature. It's not just pulpy action. There is something really special. If it weren't this emotionally resonant, if it were a lot more stupid, 
this would be an A-class series. But this is what makes it an S-class series, you know? This is what makes it great. I, I love hearing your fuel enthusiasm on it. but And what I love about it is that I have come to kind of echo that. <laughs> this is what kind of takes up. And I'm not going to... That's not to downplay the political intrigue moments. Because they're good. Yeah, and they carry through. Sure. And it's not to downplay the mm-hmm. actual... It is so good. But it's just... I think it's because this is what took me by surprise. No one was telling me uh, about these moments. And I can see how... No, that's the thing. I was about to say, oh, I can see how someone might not engage with these. But I think what I love about it is the idea that someone might come into Berserk not thinking they were the type of person who would engage with these sorts of emotional... or the time given to these emotional plot beats or moments of character growth. Mm -hmm. And then being kind of... Mm -hmm. Kaloon? Kahoon? What's the word? What am I looking for? Being bamboozled. That's what I'm going to say. It's conjoled. But I'm going to say bamboozled. Being bamboozled (laughs) um, into these moments, which to be fair, I was kind of that. That's how I experienced it. General, I know we're talking how great it is. What we're not actually doing is explaining. But anyone who hasn't read Berserk yet, please go read Berserk. Uh, What's coming out? This is the moment between Guts and Cusker, and where basically that pent out, I hate you vibe, which is done so much more than what you've Mm -hmm. seen in other works, where it's the I hate you because I love you. The tsundere. Yeah. It's this exactly. working out of this sort of love triangle they both have with the you know charismatic leader Griffiths and realising that actually mm-hmm. they don't love the idea of Griffiths as much as actually maybe they love each other or realising they're better for each other than and can have a mm-hmm. healthier... I did air quotes then, I don't think so. It's a genuinely healthier relationship than any of either of them could have mm. or could have with Griffiths. Yeah, exactly. It's the fact that, you know, she goes back to this, you know, so when Guts returns to them and it's this moment of celebration, oh, maybe Guts can help us. Maybe Guts can save us. She's resentful of him because where have you been? All of this is your fault. Griffith wouldn't have gone away if it wasn't for you. You ruined everything. In that moment, and this goes to show how good Mira was at creating characters, she says that, but that's not what she feels. She's putting on armor. She's putting on armor to say, I can't give in to the fact about how happy I am to see you again. I can't address the fact that in you, I find a sanctuary. I find someone who I'm safe with. In this moment, Kaska's so vulnerable that she's like ready to throw herself off a cliff. And when Guts saves her, even though she's hurt him in the same scene, she's so emotionally confused by it because he has fulfilled her desire. She, he is someone who, like Griffith did once, he's become the person who makes her feel safe. She's become the person whom Casca can trust the most. And that's scary to her. And it also saves them both. They both have found the person who they can allow to touch them. Can we talk about how it all goes terribly wrong? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I guess we have to. So, the Band of the Hawk, reunited with Guts, decide that they're going to rescue Griffiths and oh, yeah. go off and have mighty adventures together once again. Uh, this is a bad idea, and mm, even though this is. is a strong... I'm not going to dive back into the action-orientated part of the series 
we get this next bit is literally a pulp novel this is this could be a conan adventure you know oh you could edit this out and have it individually quite nicely the rescue from the tower excellent Mm -hmm. oh yeah i'm gonna be quite honest and say other than some small uh reactionary moments between griffith when they finally save him and the sure. facial expressions we get on guts and in fact mm-hmm. the panels dedicated to simply looking into griffith's eye mm-hmm. i think this is some of the weakest stuff for a good little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. i don't i don't buy that and i know why you feel that it's tainted by some stuff which almost everyone agrees is one of the worst parts of berserk i think the rescue from the tower is really strong i think it's very good i think it's for a couple of reasons so we have something which really stands out from berserk which is the band of a hawk on its last hurrah this is their a team going in and doing a cool mission which we've actually never seen before we've only seen them participate in huge battles this is the first time they get to be like a D party you know they've got a tank in pippin they've got a rogue They've got a leader, they have uh, they have a min-maxer called Guts, and they get to have this cool adventure where they break in through the sewers and they meet up with an, a guy on the inside and <gasps> it's Princess Charlotte! She's collaborating with them. And they go on this mission, they sneak inside, we get to see the remnants of an, the ancient capital which lies underneath um, the capital of Midland. Do you know what they see there, Duncan? Like when they drop a torch down, this this massive star case to these ancient dungeons. What do they see there, Dunk? They see a skull with the brand yeah. on it. Oh, a brand, you say? It's amazing foreshadowing. Going back to the age of King Gaiseric. Ah, oh, God, it's so good, man. Anyway, um... Good sort of foreshadowing that does not come to fruition in this arc. Yes, I'm referring to stuff which you, uh, in three years, when we get far enough from Berserk, you'll be like, wow, Geordie, that was really good. I take back everything I say about this being a weak arc. Anyway, um, another thing I think is really good about this, beyond just the action, like, there is some crazy good guts murdering a bunch of guys art in this. There's also a really unique dynamic between guts and casca because this is after they've slept with one another this is after they've professed their love for one another and they go on a mission together and they're adorable right they are they're adorably kind of awkward and i like the idea that it's like despite them despite them now having a new intimacy between each other they've got this kind Mm. of like pda complex like public space of affection still a little bit around the other hawks and mm-hmm, this slight mm-hmm. embarrassment where it's like, excuse me, to be professional. Exactly. Yeah, there's a bit where, like, Guts is like, now I'm going to be more protective of you. And she goes like, oh, so now you're going to be, like, super protective of me? I can take care of myself. Do you doubt that? And he has to kind of bashfully be like, no. Yes, that is a good bit. And I really like the meeting Griffiths again and the initial fight out the tower. The beautiful yep. uh, fight scene. I love there's a guard who goes, they're like, isn't Guts the man who took on like a hundred men? He's like, oh, ridiculous. That can't be true. Exaggerated stories. And then yep. Guts breaks out of the tower and slaughters many, many men. Literally, there's a, like a comedic shot where that guy doesn't just die. He gets his head sliced in half and you see his brain come out. 
Like the full intact brain. But. Okay. What happens next? If you're watching the 90s anime, is it cuts to them running out of town. Because what happens next, I just think is kind of forgettable. And it feels really like a monster Are of the you week referring plan. to the Black Dogs or to the Assassins? I'm preferring to both. Because they're both okay. as skippable as each other. So okay. what we get back to back, and I do think it's a problem they're back to back. I think one of them on their own would be less of a problem. But we sure. get... I almost feel like... The best thing I can compare it to is, I think, kind of early One Piece. Um... Or an and early Naruto, so saying that kind of shonen vibe of this guy, these people are the baddest baddies of ever done bad things, and they've got these elite, they've got these cool abilities, and they're really cool and fearsome warriors. And then we get no emotional attachment. We kill them within three chapters, and we move the hell along. And you just think, didn't need that now, did we? Mm-hmm. We didn't. You know it. I know it. You you probably had some deadlines. You you needed to spin the wheels until your next big moment. Yeah, there is a bit where they're like, we're going to send in our toughest guys, and they're dead. We're going to send in the tougher guys. There's one thing I have to say in their defense, which is that two things. There's a cool scene where they plunge get plunged into total darkness, and Judo has this strategy of he throws a knife, and it generates a spark on the wall, and they use that spark to like get this moment of insight where they get to attack in the dark. That's cool. It's the only fancy story I've ever read where an atalatl comes into play, and that's cool. I love atalatls. Listen, it's still good action, and it's still high quality, and obviously if you're reading this through the first time, read it, you know, you probably paid for it, hopefully, so enjoy it. But yeah. I can say quite confidently, if I was doing a reread of Berserk... I can see myself flying through a couple of sure. chapters, just being like, yep, moving along. Yeah, and you know what? I, I, I do appreciate that. I think it is skippable. Like, I understand why it has never been adapted into any adaptation. Like, it doesn't advance the story in any concrete ways. There's some stuff in it that's a little silly. Like, why is that guy so small and really good at swimming? That was weird. Um, one of those guys' superpowers is just that he has long legs. Um, they outrun an explosion, which they shouldn't be able to outrun because explosions are really fast. Yeah, it, it's silly. And it's skippable. You're right. And the next part is something which a lot of people have problems with. Including me. And I respect that. I am in the minority of that. I do think it is important to the story. But it goes a bit far in places. What Geordie is referring to, fellow members of our book club, is the introduction of a group of enemies known as the Black Dogs, Hounds, Bloodhounds. Yep, and their leader, Wild. These individuals are introduced to the story, and they do... one thing that really annoys me is this sort of retconning back into the early war. They go, mm. they're like, oh, these were elite group of mercenaries that were fought throughout Midland. And you're like, were they? I don't remember seeing them. No, they didn't. Mm-hmm. And next thing they do, and this is the most unforgivable example of this. I, It's the worst bit of the whole series. I'm really sorry, Geordie. I, I don't know why I'm apologising to you. But this is a bit where I'd actually say this was bad. You, uh, no, I mean, you're right. It's definitely the worst part of the series so far. Like, it's ridiculously bad. It's so, so over the top. 
but they use and content warning again for berserk yeah oh yeah it's berserk big content warnings it's especially for this episode we are going to discuss the eclipse but there's a scene of i say uh extreme sexual violence um Mm-hmm. against women and it's done purely to make the bad guy seem more bad it there's no time given yeah. to the victims there's no thought given mm-hmm. to the implications yeah. i remember i remember being so appalled when i first read it and i it annoys me because i'm sure that was partly what the the author's intent oh he wants you to feel appalled at what this villain's done and he's just like no, I just feel appalled that you couldn't come up with another way to make this villain seem evil than getting him to do this. Mm. Or doing it... He literally, you literally just don't need that scene. You literally don't need that scene. Like, it's just effective. Because here's the thing. Although everyone's like, I hate the character Wild. He sucks. He's the worst. In terms of him just being, like, a scary bad guy who's weird and makes you kind of uncomfortable... He works fine without that scene of sexual violence. You don't need that. You literally just need his introductory scene. Oh, he's weird. He might be supernaturally strong. He has a weird ape face. Um, and he's very hairy. He's meant to be a dog's face, surely. Ah, uh, I don't know, man. He's a bit. He's a bit simian. He has that. I don't know. He doesn't. I don't know. Kind of baboon look. Yeah, more baboon even like ape. You know. It's got that, he has like elongated jaw, very exaggerated features. Um, and like his fight with Guts, I think is really good. I think it's a really good fight. And if it were just that, and you didn't have that initial horrible scene of sexual violence, and then an attempted scene of sexual violence against Casca, which is sucks, it sucks, it's gross, and so over the top. If that just wasn't there, this would be one of the best fights in all of manga. I wouldn't give it that title, but it does speak to sort of the using up of goodwill. Sure. And Berserk earned so much goodwill mm-hmm. up to this point. And the um, the assassins, when they're first leaving the city, use up a little bit. Okay. And then this guy's introduction used up a bit more. Mm-hmm. And then that scene uh, against the basically nameless side characters of sexual violence and assault you stop an awful lot and so by the time we get to the uh, scene with casca it's all gone and i really was just there like can this story move on Mm. i don't see any because what's the point of a scene let's just say why do you include anything in your story there is and for me a point to the scene not to the sexual violence that sucks it shouldn't be in there it's completely inappropriate and it's just like ridiculous considering what's coming next you know we're about to see the eclipse that's going to be shocking enough you don't need this shit here you know exactly but there is a point to the scene there is a point okay you think there's a point i would say this scene does not do either a give significant character growth okay it tells us that guts is badass and i think we knew that and b i don't think it drives the plot forward and i my evidence for that is that if you watch any of the adaptions, it's not in there, and the plot still works. That's so somewhat true, Trudy, but... What does this do? Skull Knight is in the movies, not the 97 show, and Skull Knight not being there is a plot hole. He needs to be there, right? So I don't think you can quite say, just because they weren't in the adaptations, the scene is unnecessary. Here is my reason why I think this scene 
most of the scene is necessary. And that is, this is the first time Guts kills a demon. And that's not important because it shows Guts is a badass. We've been doing, all we've been doing so far since Guts' return is shown he is so much stronger now than before. We are showing how incredibly strong he is. But is he strong enough to kill something which isn't human? Because in the Eclipse, the answer is, oh yeah, absolutely. Look at Guts go. He's slaughtering demons left and right. He's like the fucking Doomslayer. When fighting Wild, that question is open-ended. He gets asked in this flashback when he's almost dead, why do you need to keep doing this crazy shit? Why do you need to keep doing this crazy training? And he says, because I need to fight things that might not be able to be killed. And that's what he proves here. He proves that he's gone beyond what is human. That he's able to win. It takes everything. It takes him destroying his armor. It takes him getting injured. He has to break his sword, pulling off a like literal Naruto tactic and like creating a decoy. But he wins. Counterpoint. Sure. Geordie, who deals the finishing killing blow to Wild? He was already dying. Wild is killed by another demon, and I think that invalidates your above point. No, it doesn't. He was dying. He literally said, I, I need to I need the bailet to summon the god hand, otherwise I'm gonna die, because he was dying. I'm not I don't buy it. I'm really sorry, mate. I'm sure you enjoyed the fight and it is a good fight, but I still feel this is a needless section and undeniably a skippable one. Alright, alright. I've realised we missed something really important because when Wild gets back up, he shows the band of a hawk Griffith state. He rips apart the armour which Guts put on him whilst they were sort of having fun together, being pals, and he shows the band of a hawk the state Griffith is in, and I realised we didn't actually say what Griffith was in. Uh, you could have been listening to the show being like, and Griffith's just... Hopping along, back in the gang, hooray! Duncan, how's he doing? I mean, he could have done better. Uh, Griffith is tortured over the two years, and he is visibly mutilated to... I'm not going to lie. Oh, sorry, this is going to come off really badly. I feel like this is done somewhat tastefully. Sure. Um, in the way they portray him. I think I like the fact that there's not too grotesque. And Berserk clearly can go grotesque. It's pretty, it's pretty grotesque in some places, man. He's literally been flayed. But I feel like the artwork was interestingly shied away in areas. Mm. It shows a lot of restraint, as I think what you're saying. Like, we yes, know exactly he has like a say. fucked up face because he's wearing his his archetypical falcon helmet, which obscures a lot of his face and is used really well here in augmenting his expressions. You know, like, he's silent. He doesn't have a tongue anymore. And we communicate so much with his looks and the, the way his, um, his helmet can make him look mad or make him look small, make him look frail. The ligaments in his arms are gone so he can, like, barely lift it. He can't use a sword anymore. He's skin and bones. He's been flayed in places. So you can literally see, like, his ribs. Uh, he's pretty messed up. So what's the point of this scene then when he gets his arm ripped off? It shows that the dream is over. Exactly. The band of the hawk is done. The hawk has its wings clipped. And there's a question in the air. 
what becomes of the band now? They, they followed Griffith's dream to the end, and it's over. Not all dreams come true. The impossible dream has failed. And where do folks go? Judo says, like, I'm gone. I'm going to make a band of thieves. I'm going to take some of our guys. And in fact, he says, I'm going to take Griffith and I'm going to look after him. I'm going to build up a band of thieves and we're going to steal for our living. That's what I used to do. It's what I'm going to do now. And I'll look after Griffith. And Duncan, your wish gets to be granted because a bunch of the vanguard, a bunch of the attack force come up to Guts and say, you can be our leader now. We'll go wherever you go. We'll follow you to the very end. But Casca doesn't. Yeah. I want to just also latch onto the, the guys who say, let's follow Guts. Do you feel that the fact that Guts is sort of reluctant in this moment, uh, sort of a, a sign of like lacking confidence, or sort of on another level, it's like Guts is like, yeah, but I don't have a grand plan or a dream. Like, where would we go? That, I, think that, I think that is a part of it. I think Guts is, like, genuinely considering it. But basically, I think his priority in that moment is, I'm going to go where Casca goes. I, I need to be with her. She's the person who's most important to me. And I'll be a mercenary. I'll be a sword. It's all I know how to be. But as long as she's with me. And she tells him, I can't do that. I can't leave Griffith. And here's the amazing thing about this. Is that, in some ways, Casca hasn't changed. She has to keep following Griffith. She thought she could change, but she couldn't. And Griffith hears this. He overhears this. And he realizes, Casca pities me. Griffith is so... And here's the thing about Griffith, guys. He's a bastard to the core. He is a fucking rat. He, he tries to rape Casca. Like, in his emaciated state, he tries to take advantage of her, and she weeps because she sees what the fuck has Griffith become? How has he become so low? I'll have to be quite honest with you. When I first read this scene, I didn't actually get what he was doing. No, and that's the, thi- that's, that's the thing. is like It's actually kind of hard to interpret because there's no dialogue, and because she never brings it up. She never, like talks about it in that way but that's what he's trying to do if you say so i'll be honest to me this was more of a oh maybe i'm just being too nice to griffith but i just read this as a man just being like he was just trying to <laughs> i was gonna sound really pathetic now was he just trying to go in for a hug <laughs> i know that sounds so <laughs> stupid but that's like uh i do, i don't think he was going for a hug man <laughs> i don't think i think griffith probably wouldn't have seen it the way i have described it um because he would assume that she'd be willing that he could always have her remember he conceptualized his new pastoral life and Casca was his wife in it mm. he's this is someone he knows who loves him this is someone he thinks he can always count on this is someone he thinks he possesses and he's discovered that that's not true this is it this is the pivotal moment i think where i say the pivotal moment where griffith really drops below my estimations I mean, it'll do that, won't it? Um, Griffith runs away. He takes the reins that he can gather, and he takes the cardies in, and he yeah, he strikes the, the horses, and he makes them run. And they run away, and he abandons the abandoned horse. They all, they all chase after him on horseback and what have you. And Griffith, his cart crashes. 
He's, he washes up in a river and he finds this bit of broken wood and he tries to kill himself. He throws himself down and tries to skewer his neck and realizes that he's literally not even strong enough to do that. He has no control over his fate. He can't even choose when he dies. And then the Bailet, this special fortune-telling stone that was lost to him so long ago, washes up in the river in front of him. What a coincidence. And he lifts it up and his blood runs over it and the sun goes out. Right. Duncan, we talked about it before. What is a baylet? A baylet is a small stone with human face parts randomly assorted around it. And essentially, it's just the conduit to the god hand, the demon lords of this world, who will offer Mm -hmm. you your heart's desires in return for a meagre sacrifice of some human lives. Come on. He sacrificed a band of a hawk. Right. Can I get to do the... Uh, I, sorry, I've been waiting for this for quite a while now. Griffiths did nothing sure, wrong. What's up? <laughs> Obviously, if you read into the subtext of this scene, Jordy, you'll notice oh. that the band of the hawk said that they were prepared to die for his dream. Now, obviously, they thought it would be a sort of a, a matter of chance. You know, we might die and we might get the dream. All Griffiths did is get us into a situation where it was a guarantee... A guaranteed death, but guaranteed dream. Is that really Hmm. so wrong? I will... To quote the great Judge Claude Frodo, I will give you a moment to recant and save yourself. I I shall, for what I said was stupid. (sighs) Fucking hell. So, the apocalypse happens. They all get transported through space-time to another dimension um, made up of hills which are human faces. Uh, a ginormous hand grows from the ground and they meet the God Hand, who we did mention in the previous episode, and we've described enough of them, but I don't think we need to revisit them. But they tell Griffith, you are the chosen one. You're the one we've been waiting for, the last God Hand. Destiny chose you, Griffith. You are going to be reborn as the Wings of Darkness, Themto. And what does Griffith say when he finds out that he can choose to sacrifice all his loved ones to achieve his dream? This is a moment outside the flow of causality. He is the only person in the universe who has free will in this moment. What does he do? He haggles, mate. Oh? I mean, he doesn't haggle for their lives. He, he just asks if he wants some really nice wings. Oh, yes, that's right. He wants wings. Did you ever um, read uh, Faustus when you were younger? I, Duncan, I did not read Faustus. No, I don't know why we had to read it. It's a play, but whatever. We had to read it. And there's uh, in that, the good Dr. Faustus makes a pact with the devil for unlimited power in exchange for his soul. But what always got me reading it is that he agrees, I think it's like 20 years. The demon's like, I'll give you unlimited power for 20 years in return for your soul for all eternity. And it, for some reason, when I first read it, my first thought was, why does he haggle? <laughs> like, 20 years? Come on, be like, come on, can I have 50? Like, I, I just, I just to me, that's just like the default. It's like, well, you know, yeah, that's a good price, mate, but at least try it. 
The demon wants you to accept, so get your money's worth for your soul. Anyway, Griffiths does haggle, so I respect him. And <laughs> some really great uh, demon designs come out. Oh, yeah. Of this scene. Oh, yeah. I think the fact that they're all unique, like there's a really good sense that I almost feel like uh, when he was doing this piece, he had basically all these like sketch up, like mugshot. I, like, I imagine like a prison mugshots on the wall of like every demon. And he's basically like tracks them and goes, okay, you're there. You're there. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. But to me, like there's almost a sense of continuity here of like, right. I know who you are. I know who you are. I know who you are. These are all like, they might not be named to us, but I feel like he at least has like a name and like a character is like, okay, that's that demon. That's that demon. That's horny boy. That's bumblebee boy. And has them all lined up. Do you get the vibe? You, you, you are right, Duncan. And I know this is true because, um, because did I mention this in the last episode? I don't believe you but did. These demons, some of them show up again. And I'm not just talking about, like, the Slug Lord or, um, or that fairy girl or, or the one who gets killed on, like, page two of the manga who shows up and kills Caucus. Like, some of these guys, random guys, show up later as, like, foot soldiers. Like, the, these are incredibly intricate designs. And he uses them again. He's like, this is a character that exists. He's, this guy is out there. Lobster boy, he's out there. The guy who like chews up and tries to swallow guts later, he's here. One of these guys in it is like a really prominent foot soldier later on in the manga. He, he's the guy who chews off guts' hand. He's an important character. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What it's a fucking a... guy was Miura. It's also worth mentioning, and we haven't to this point, which is that... The, the art here is like um, it's like something that, that Junji Ito would create. These horrible monsters, this really beautiful, in the most horrible way that the word beauty can be used. Uh, sinister, um, awe-inspiring, uh, dark, grim shadings. But the other huge influence, and it's important you mention Faustus, is Bosch. He was really, really inspired by Bosch and his depictions of hell. And this is Bosch painting after Bosch painting after Bosch painting. And it doesn't go to waste. It, I think it's appreciated that what he's doing here, the, like, the, the extra time, the effort into the design, kind of helped me then like hit the character moments as well. By having these things that you could be like, that demon, that bastard is the one that killed Caucus or... The one that took uh, Judo, when Judo dies. Yeah. Really, I think I say it's Shamal. And I love the... I feel really bad talking about this. I love the scene when Judo dies. Um, I enjoy... I appreciate the scene when Judo dies. Because I think it's a lovely reminder that... Like, you've got all these unique demons. And you have all these unique characters. The Band of the Hawk, we often talk. Uh, Gaston, uh, we mentioned in part one. is sort of the, the face, the voice. When the average soldier needs a voice. But it's really nice to have that kind of reminder of like when Judo dies, like we learn a bit about him in those final moments that yeah. he too was in love with Casca. Uh, and it just for me really harkens back to the uh, scene early in Berserk, the bonfire scene when mm-hmm. Guts is overlooking the field. And then like, at every single bonfire, you know, there's different lives, different stories going on. You remember like, oh my God, all these background characters were characters. I didn't know them, but they had a story. And 
that's that's the beauty in Berserk where I found myself like, no, this is why I'm enjoying it so much. Because he's created a world where I'm filling in blanks where he hasn't put things. I don't know who that Band of the Hawk guy was who just got his hair sliced off, but I feel that he was a character. He had a tale, a tragic story. I don't know it, but I feel like it was there. And I think I wouldn't give the world that much credit if every element of every panel wasn't treated with the same care. There's no blanks in these panels that aren't filled in that make the world seem not lived in or not complete. Duncan, uh, that was really good. Okay, let's... Let's push on, and I think I don't want to... Here's, here's the thing, Dunk. There are only a couple of things we really need to highlight, because the thing about the Eclipse is that we really have to stress that it is horrible. This is, like, it's gory, it's dark, it's morbid. You see so many people wantonly slaughtered, and God help us, it's beautiful. You can't believe Miura's penmanship. Like I said, it's a vision straight out of hell. And boy, does he capture it. You feel like you're in a carnival of death. I appreciate that. I appreciate so much the the artistry there. Because, it, like I said, it keeps me yeah, you in, can't the, turn in away. the place. I forget that I'm looking at an, uh, a piece of artwork. Or that I'm sort of mm-hmm. seeing the, the shortcuts. Or the little penmanship, the little styles and techniques. It keeps me present with the characters when the art's kind of at that level. And that's something I feel often when I read any Mm -hmm. comic or manga. How do I put this? Mm -hmm. I need to be able to appreciate the art without constantly thinking, wow, I'm looking at really good art. And to do that, the art has to be not really good. It has to be perfect. It's like how in a movie, you need to just be constantly surprised by really obvious twists because you're carried away. And carried away is the word. You can't stop reading it when you start. You want to look away and you have to keep reading. You have to see what comes next. The art when Guts fights demons is us is astounding. The, the art when people are devoured is horrible and it's incredible. I think the movie allegory works really well um, compared to like CGI. If I ever stop and think, wow, the CGI was really good. Exactly. Something's yes, gone wrong. That's very well stated. Like, and it doesn't go wrong here. You know, because in a, in a movie, if I'm taken away by the story, I never stop to think about the CGI. I always think like the uh, Lord of the Rings is such a good example mm-hmm. with the character of Gollum. I never, when I first watched that movie as a kid, stopped to think that Gollum was CGI. Because I was just watching the character of Gollum. And in the same way, in that same kind of sense, that's why I got out of Berserk. Um, oh my god, mate. It's exhausting. I feel like I need to just go to the end of this and sort of say how it ends and what I think of the Golden sure. Age and what I think going forwards. I want to say something about the anime. Uh, because I think a lot of people do mm-hmm. get introduced to the anime first. Uh, it was quite popular. It's quite accessible. The final shot of the anime... Uh, not the final shot, but the closing mm-hmm. moment of Guts' story. Uh, do you know this? this first time I do know it, yes. I've it, never seen it, but I'm familiar with it. Is the moment where Guts loses his arm and is pinned down. Doesn't just lose it, he chops it off. He does indeed. 127 hours himself. To try and save Cusker. And he does it way faster than that wimp, James Franco. Okay. Thanks, James. <laughs> 127 hours, more like 1.2 seconds, baby. 
1.27 seconds, mate. What? Um, oh, damn it! <laughs> the stage Gasker who's being assaulted by... I don't even want to dig into too much. It's such yeah, a it's God. Thing. It's so horrible. It's so horrible. It's like something out of... I'll, I'll spit on your grave, you know? It's God. Dreadful. And the final shot of the anime is Guts losing his vision, watching yeah. that scene when he gets his eye gouged out. And that's the last thing mm. that eye sees. And it ties so beautifully into the start of the Black Swordsman, where you see he has only one eye. And... But they don't explain how he escapes. No, they don't. And I just had to kind of walk away from that. And to be honest, other than knowing that he does somehow, it gave mm-hmm. me a very different vibe. Because I walked away from Berserk for years thinking Berserk with this nihilistic story of mm-hmm. how, no matter how great a swordsman you are, you could be the best, Guts is the best swordsman in the world. And sure. that's not enough. And that's and, genuinely how I thought of Berserk. And the thing is, that's kind of the opposite. And here's the thing, we haven't talked enough about the themes of Berserk, and that is the most important thing I want to talk about. There is a reason why people get the brand of sacrifice tattooed on them. I'm in the Berserk subreddit. I see it twice a week, people getting this tattoo. Why the fuck would you get the brand of sacrifice tattoo? The brand of sacrifice tattoo means that you've been subject to this sacrifice. Fate is decreed you're gonna die, and for the rest of your life, you're gonna be hunted by demons every night. Why would you get that sacrifice? Why would you put that? Why would you get it tattooed on you? I now know. Because you're a survivor. Exactly. I was, I was going to say because you're sad. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. No disrespect to people uh, who do it. And if your body, your choice. Yeah, it's pretty emo. But I am a little bit like, come on, guys. I, I, I always have this slight thing. I know, and I know so many people who, who get really beautiful tattoos that reflect the media that they love. Mm-hmm. And I see it. I mm-hmm. get the beauty. And I get that it's about you enjoying it. If you get to wake up every morning, look in the mirror and see it, and it brings you joy, sparks joy on you, great, excellent. Mm. But I always have this bit of me, it's like, oh, you should have got someone's intellectual property. Oh, you're like a walking billboard. <laughs> and I know that's such a shallow kind of if... look at it, and I get why you, people get joy out of it, but that always goes through my head. If I knew it wouldn't make my mum cry, I would get a brand of sacrifice tattooed on me. What if you knew it would make me cry? <laughs> Then I won't do it, Duncan, of course. I wouldn't want to hurt your feelings. Um, I say this, I constantly swear at you. But, um, yeah, there's a reason why. It's about being, you're a survivor. Fate decreed you should die, and you didn't. And despite it all, despite everything, you're still kicking. The brand of sacrifice um, attracts demons to Guts. Casca and Guts are rescued from the Eclipse by the Skull Knight an elusive figure who, at this point of the story, becomes really important. He's been watching over Guts, he's been curious about him, and at this moment, he saves him. Destiny said Guts should be dead. He and Casca are not dead. They're still alive. We aren't yet at the end of the Golden Age, though. There are two more things we have to cover. Guts has escaped. Casca has escaped. But both of them are heavily impacted. Duncan, I'll let you decide which of them you want to talk about and the influence the Eclipse is having them. Which of them do you want to talk about? 
obviously I'm going to pick on Casca. Sure. Casca has, well, Guts has lost his arm yeah. and his eye. Casca has had a f- more emotionally traumatic experience. Um, Casca is assaulted both physically and sexually by the demons and by Griffith mm. reborn as Femto. And mm-hmm. this has caused her to essentially... It's hard to describe based on the information She's given. She's gone mad. I don't want to use that phrasing. I have to use receded in upon herself. She is not responding in a yeah to to the normal way. Yeah, she has entered into a severely oh, what's the what's the word? Shall she's say into a regressive state. Yes, regressive. No, she's not catatonic. She's very responsive, but she ha- she is regre- in a regressive state, uh, arrested development. She's she's completely inarticulate, and she's lost her memory. And she has poor reasoning skills. She's intellectually stunted. She can't talk. She doesn't know her name. She's And she's terrified of men, including Guts. She's terrified to spend any time with Guts. And... <sighs> okay, I need to approach it from two points. I need to say what this is for Casca and then what this is for Guts. For Casca, sure. this is her losing what was her almost a finding feature that we saw when the band of the hawk were on the run she was the leader mm. she was secretly sure. the the charisma that held it together the whole time mm-hmm. under griffiths you know her mind her tactics that was what we were just discovering about her how she had it all in her to lead yeah and be strong and independent and that's what she's lost and being stolen from her and I'm to be honest, I'm very interested to see how this goes and how this develops because I th- I don't know how this story developed out of this point, Jordi, but I feel this is would be very challenging for an author. I don't know mm-hmm. about uh, people suffering from trauma in real life in great detail. I don't know so the journeys they have to go through and the therapy involved, but I think this would be very challenging for an author to fairly represent what Cusker yeah. has to go through then to move forward or if she does move forward. Or how he will use her as a character from this point onwards. It certainly is. It certainly is a great challenge. It certainly is a great challenge. Uh, I don't know if Miura rose to that challenge. Really, um, you. We will talk about it going forwards when we revisit more of Berserk. There's a lot to be said about it. Shall I talk about guts then? Let's hit on guts. Guts is angry. Guts has, in a subtle way, kind of gone insane. He is so full of hate, so full of, 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 of loathing and fear and sadness that he is on a warpath. He makes a declaration of war against all demon kind. He says, I'm still standing. I'm kicking you couldn't kill me, and now I'm going to kill every last one of you. He's, he decides, I'm going to become the Black Swordsman. I'm going to go out of my land and find, down, find every demon I can and kill it. Guts is, dwells. Here's a crazy thing, and this isn't really addressed in the, um, in the story. Guts is actually now a walking interdimensional portal. He lives within the Intercise. Sorry, the interstice. It's a hard word to say. Wherever Guts goes, like, there's a bubble of 
transdimensional energy, which allows demons to manifest around him. Wherever he goes, they will be there. When the night falls, they'll come about. Guts is entering a world where he cannot sleep. Where he'll never be safe. He has one place he can be safe, Ferris. It's a special magical place. He can be safe where Casca is, and he leaves. He can't stay still. He has to take action. In one way, that's almost healthy. That's about him gaining control over his life, right? But Guts is not in control. Guts is entering the Black Swordsman arc. Guts is entering a state where he is so emotionally repressed, he is so afraid of facing his own trauma, that he wants to take it out on the entire world. And he gets the tools to do that when he gets equipped for the for his quest. Because a very minor character, a very minor character, who we were introduced to before in a flashback, shows up and becomes super important. More important than, than you know, Duncan. He, the character of Gotto, a blacksmith, a really, really good blacksmith, makes got some armor. He makes him a really special sword. Um, he doesn't make it for Guts, but he made an artificial hand with a cannon in it because Gotto is a cool dude, which Rickert, Rickert's about, we have not mentioned him once in this entire podcast, but he's there. He's the only other surviving member of the Mandalore Hall. He wasn't in the Eclipse because he had an owie. Ha! <sighs> this scene. The first time Guts fights a demon after the Eclipse. Can we talk about it? It's really good. You can gush about it, but I'm going to be honest. While this is sort of um, cathartic as a scene, I really do feel that I still stand worth the anime. I feel like the emotional climax happened at the eclipse. And this moment, this sort of epilogue to the golden age, I often just feel, I do feel a little bit like, well, this is set up for what comes next. And this is recontextualizing the Black Swordsman. Yes, that's true. And that's important. It's it's cool and it's fun and it's important to the grand story of Berserk. But I do still have that sensation that this is the epilogue. But it's an epilogue with a cool fight. So it's yes, more than just a cool it. fight. Vera, this is the hey. Did you know that Kentaro Miura is fucking cultured? There are two deep cut artistic references in this fight. The first of which is is that when Guts gets this cool new sword, it's like, you can kill a hundred guys with this, no problem. He tests it out, and they lay a sword on an anvil, and Guts tries to chop the sword in half, and he chops the anvil in half. That, um, I've always believed, is a reference to the Saga of the Volsung. The Saga of the Volsung, where there's a special magic sword, and Sigurd, the dragon slayer, Tests out the sword by slicing an anvil in half. How about that? Why would dragon slayers be important to this scene? Well, after this demon shows up, it transforms and is a reference to the red dragon. He literally, like, drew the red dragon right there on the manga page just to be like, that's one of the great works of art of all time, and now I'm just gonna do it in my action manga. Um... Oh, did I mention there's a dragon, a red dragon? The guy's not actually a dragon, but the framing of it in the page is very much the, the red dragon by insert artist here. Hello everyone, it's Future Geordie here. Uh, the painting is by William Blake, but it's actually called The Great Red Dragon and a Woman Clothed in the Sun, The Book of Revelations 12, 1 through 4. 
That's its actual title. Guts' sword breaks. What does he find? It's his iconic sword. It's the big one. He finds the Dragon Slayer. He chops it up. He shoots it with his big cannon arm. It's dope. Boom. That's the end of the eclipse. The, the end of your golden age. Whew. I'm glad that you enjoyed it on your reread. I loved it on the first time through. It This really did open my eyes to what can be achieved. Um, if anything, it's now ruined me against a lot of other similar work uh, for being so good. It will do that. I think what I enjoyed reading the manga, particularly for someone who's already seen the anime, is it did give me, like you said, it's flipped it from a nihilistic story to the story of a man who keeps fighting no matter what. And mm-hmm. I don't know going forwards, but it kind of gives me this idea of the simple fact that Guts isn't dead is already a small victory for the character. Mm-hmm. I'm a runaway train on a broken track. I'm still alive. And that's enough. And that's something to to kind of like harken round. And I do want to see uh, where Guts develops. I do want to see what characters are brought around him. I really admire the fact that so many great rich characters were given to us during the Golden Age. And Mura was killed them all off. You know? George R. R. Martin style. <laughs> I think it takes a lot as an author to develop a great character to have them killed. And and not in the way where it's like, this guy's going to die to like drive everything on. Um, but to just feel like, yeah, no, these, these were fun people to hang around with. I don't even know what else to add. It's a really good thing. Did I like Berserk? Did, did everyone get that? I, I, I really like Berserk. So this is after the Skull Knights being like, that is the destiny of those who've received a brand of sacrifice, your body, and every last drop of blood in it has been given as an offering to those of the darkness. And Guts goes, destiny? Destiny, destiny, shut the hell up! How about you save your high and mighty bullshit for after you've been haunted to death, skull face? Sacrifice, offering, destiny, st- quit spouting a bunch of cryptic explanations. The point is, this is war. It ain't different from any other war. The last one standing wins. And if that sets the tone for the story going forwards, I think that's an excellent point to leave off on. This is an ongoing fight, an ongoing series. Almost. Hey, Dunk. Hey, Dunk. How about uh, Guts and Casca's kid? And I'm not going to address that because that was too scarring for me. <laughs> we yeah, can explore man. that in how that gets developed in the future of Berserk. All right. All right. I hear you. You've had enough. You need a break. I do indeed. Oh, God, mate. This was this has been a year long read. The conviction arcs, Nick. Um, most people say the Golden Age is the best arc. Probably is. It's probably the best one. I think the Conviction arc is the most enjoyable. It's just balls to the wall from here on out, baby. It's crazy. I'll continue it. I think at a steady pace. I like the pace I've set with Berserk. Um, particularly, I'm excited now because now I'm going beyond the content that I've actually kind of <laughs> Yeah, you don't consumed. know what's happening now. It really is going to be quite a fun new adventure. By the way, did you get in your Kindle version... Did you get um, Berserk the Prototype? I did indeed. Yeah, isn't that weird? 
it's weird because it's so similar in so many ways and so different in others. And, like, I really love the fact that, like, elements, you could really see where, like, ideas for setup were there, even though probably the ideas to fulfil them weren't. Because Guts is angry and, like, well, obviously he, he hadn't come up with the full story for why Guts was angry in this one. <laughs> yep, he was like, angry man, big sword. Uh, one thing I really did enjoy uh, from the prototype is that in the prototype he has an eye patch and he doesn't in the actual. And I think yes, really good he, idea. The funny thing is he he gives it away in the in the um, in the prototype. He's like, here, have my eye patch. It'll be like your blanket. Oh. Right to the other people, to the many people who have read Berserk or watched Berserk. But if you've watched Berserk, read Berserk. Then to all the people that have now read Berserk. People who have only experienced the opening arcs to the people that have read all of it. What do you think? I'm sure most people love it. Um, but what you're probably sitting here is, why didn't you discuss this point? You've missed this important theme. So We definitely in missed some stuff, man. And <laughs> you literally refused to discuss the baby. Exactly. So write in and tell us about it. You can reach out to us at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com or mm-hmm. hit us up on Instagram at isthisjustfantasypodcast. And if your opinions are interesting, we will discuss them here. Yeah. You know that bit where Guts, like, snapped a demon's horn off and then used it as a weapon? That was so cool. It was really cool, mate. It was really cool. Duncan! Yeah? We've had a very strange month. We we made it so bad, uh, we had to read spooky books, but that limit is off now. And... Wait, whose turn is it to pick? It, I was about to say, it's your turn to pick, because I love Berserk so much. But no, it's my turn to pick! Berserk was my pick. So, yeah. Jordan, where are you going to take us? Something something, uh, something dark again, or something light? Um, Actually, there are some dark parts in it. This is a book I've already read. Um, I read it over the summer holidays, and the reason I'm picking it now is that I want us to read it. And I think if I wait even a second longer, I'm going to stop forgetting stuff. So it has to be now. All right, I'm ready. What have you got for Alrighty, me? buddy. The book in question is... It is sequel time, baby. You pick the first one, I pick the second one. We are reading the sequel to Kristen Britton's The Green Rider. We are reading First Rider's Call. Oh, that is an exciting pick. I originally didn't want to read this, or at least I didn't want to read it straight away. No, so you was... wanted to, to... Have a gap. And now you you've given me one. Gap. So I, sure I guess did. I'll better read it now. Well, I hope this is good. I I could tell that you really fell in love with the first one, potentially more than mm-hmm. I did. So I hope that love has proven true, and not become unrequited in this second novel. Don't know how that. We're going to be reading all of them, Dunk. I don't think there's any stopping us. Uh, there will be me if I don't love this one. <laughs> Damn it! I forgot about that. Of course, if you don't like it, we're done. So here's hoping I enjoy this one. Only one way to find out. Onwards and upwards. In a fortnight's time, we will be discussing First Rider's Call. I've been, I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your other host, Duncan Nichol. See you around, strugglers. May. Such a weird vibe. Don't leave <laughs> that in. Don't leave that in the edit.
Oh, and a happy NaNoWriMo to all who celebrate. I know it's going... Yeah, just, yeah, just okay for me.